All right, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, welcome to the GT Power Hour. My name is Rory Sweeney. I am your host, and with me, as always, is the inimitable Glenn Thomas. We are here for the sixth episode. Glenn, how are you doing this month? I'm feeling a little sheltered right now, actually, Rory. <laughs> how about you? A little socially distanced, perhaps? Yeah. yeah exactly. I was going to say, I was going to call this our coronavirus episode, but I don't know that we have any idea how long this will go on, so we may be talking about this next month as well. Well, and I think probably our listeners would appreciate knowing that we are doing this for the first time ever, not in the same room together. Normally, we're sitting around a conference table, talking to each other, looking at each other, but we're trying a new technology here and doing this remotely. So, we're uh, social distancing ourselves. Who says we're not adaptable? Absolutely, absolutely. Well, part of the, having that technology has given us a great opportunity to bring in some guests to discuss these topics with us, and we've got a great one today, Glenn. We're honored to have joined us this afternoon, Chairman Jason Stanek from the Maryland Public. Public Service Commission. And we thank Chairman Stanek for joining us. Obviously, these are challenging times for everybody, and the Chairman's ability to take a little time out of his busy schedule to join us is greatly appreciated. Chairman Stanek has an incredible resume for a state public utility commissioner. He spent 16 years at the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. He spent two years on Capitol Hill working in Congress on the House Energy and Commerce Committee. He's an active leader in NARUC working on the Electricity Committee and the International Relations Committee. People in Maryland are really lucky to have him. Chairman Stanek, thank you for joining us. Glenn, thank you. It's good to be here today. Thank you for being with us, Chairman. We really appreciate you joining the GT Power Hour early in our existence. Glenn gave a little bit of your background, but maybe you could go into a little more detail. What were you doing before you were the Chairman at the Commission? Thanks, Rory. As Glenn said, I was at the Commission for about 16 years. I had a number of different roles during my tenure there, although I was fortunate to work for both the Chairman, Chairman Pat Wood, and Commissioner Phil Moeller for most of my tenure at the Commission. Additionally, I was an attorney in the General Counsel's Office. I was a litigator in the Office of Administrative Litigation, and I ended my career as an investigative attorney with the Commission's Office of Enforcement. So over those 16 years, I've had a lot of exposure to the different offices in FERC, and it, it's served me was a great place to work for those years. You know, it's interesting, Rory, like a common career path is to go the route of going state commissioner to FERC commissioner. Chairman, are you aware of anybody who's done your route going from FERC staffer to state commissioner? Are you the first one to plow this ground? That's a great question and one that I haven't considered before, but I think you're right. I don't recall any other FERC staffers moving to a state position before. Yeah, it really is an intriguing career path, and Glenn, you of all people would know. Jason, tell us, what have been some of the biggest surprises, both positive and negative, what have been some of the biggest surprises that you've seen? In terms of surprises, when I moved from effectively a federal regulatory background to a state background, I thought, and I was wrong in thinking this, that state regulator would be just a mini version of FERC. That misconception was shattered on day one because I <laughs> found out that state commissions such as the Maryland PSC regulate more than just electricity and natural gas. They regulate telephone lines, private water companies, taxi cabs, Ubers, tugboats in the Chesapeake Bay, and so much more. So the field of jurisdiction, as opposed to what you would see at FERC, is so much wider, but I was also surprised that the resources are so much smaller. The Maryland Commission only 
only has about 150 employees compared to 17 or 1,800 at FERC. And that was a surprise. I learned that we quickly had to do a lot more with less. But I'm happy to say that I've always been impressed with the Maryland PSC's staff and their expertise and their ability to multitask on a number of various topics and disciplines. Yeah, and that's probably like a dynamic that not a lot of folks appreciate. I remember when I was on the Pennsylvania Commission, over half of our employees were dedicated to transportation. And that's just not something people think of when they think of state missions. And you know, I was with the Virginia Commission a couple of weeks ago, and they're regulating health care providers and health insurance providers and banking institutions in, in Virginia. So the variety at the state level is pretty unique and, and intriguing. As you pointed out, most, most state commissions tend not to be overstaffed when it comes to these issues. Very interesting observation. Yeah, that had to be a bit of a crash course for you. It was. The statute at the state level is very different than the federal statutes. So I spent the first couple of weeks getting a better understanding of the Public Utilities article in Maryland, which covers a wide range of issues from toll roads to setting rates for the Chesapeake Bay pilots to taking a look at other aspects of regulation that folks down at 888 1st Street in Washington would not be taking a look at. Now, one of the other differences that strikes me between FERC and the Maryland Commission is FERC is structured where the chairman's office has a fair amount of authority vis-a-vis the other offices. I mean, everything at FERC usually runs through the chairman's office. Is Maryland set up the same way like that, or is it more spread out among the five commissioners? We have a more of a collegial reporting structure where the commissioners all have a say in how the agency is run and operated, and I always want to solicit their input to get their sense. It's a small agency, so we see each other on a very regular basis, whereas at FERC, you could go weeks or months without seeing particular employees. Maybe that's preferable sometimes, huh? That could be, depending on who you're trying to avoid. So I'm sure your crash course took up most of your time when you were first getting on board there, but since then, I'm hoping, you've found some free time. What do you do, or, or what would you like to be able to do in your free time? In my free time, this is the time of year where I begin to do landscaping and gardening. I haven't had any focus to begin that just yet, but hopefully when things settle down, with the current situation that we're dealing with, especially with the fact that everybody is working from home currently, I do hope to at least get outside and get some fresh air. But for the time being, as this is the first week since the agency has been closed and everybody has been working from home, it's been rather hectic. And that is what we call in the biz a segue to our second topic, which I have to assume it's on everybody's mind throughout the world, is the coronavirus COVID-19 pandemic that has touched pretty much everywhere in the world as far as I'm aware of. What are you guys doing in Maryland to address this? Similar to other states, in the absence of strong federal response, Maryland has taken its own initiatives to implement procedures such as social distancing and keeping people out of areas where they typically congregate. Governor Hogan was one of the first to announce a state of emergency in Maryland almost two weeks ago, and since then he has used his emergency powers to close most of these places, such as restaurants, bars, gymnasiums, and other places. The PSC closed its offices last week on Monday in an attempt to have folks not report into the office in, in relatively close quarters, and we're doing our best to keep the agency operations as normal as, as possible. Has that been hard? I'm here in Philadelphia. I'm in the city. There's a decent amount of social distancing going on, as the, as the term is, but have you found it hard to control that or to get citizens to pay attention? Overall, what we've been seeing in places such as Florida with large groups congregating on the beach is that there's a large swath of society that is not viewing this as a situation that deserves the attention that it's getting. 
Hopefully, in the near future, we will see this curve begin to flatten, but we do need everybody's help to separate whether you are exhibiting symptoms or not. This is a concerning spread of a very highly contagious virus. We've urged all PSC employees to remain at home to conduct all their business, either over telephone or over laptop computers. And we're hoping that these preventative efforts will help us in Maryland and across the country to flatten that curve to reduce the exposure to the more vulnerable populations among us. Can we talk a little bit about what specifically, I mean, maybe this is meant for utilities in Maryland, and, and can you maybe describe a little bit more the conversations you're having with, whether it's your telecom, your gas, electric, or water utilities right now to make sure that as society adapts to these new norms that the utility services that people depend on are going to continue to be there? Our utilities in the state, whether they be electric, gas, water, or otherwise, have been in good contact. Some of them had very impressive pandemic response plans that we're viewing now. Others were a little slower to develop a response plan, but we have them now as well. I'm rather confident that our utilities will continue to perform during this situation, and I think the industry overall is better prepared to respond than other sectors, which unfortunately may feel a stronger effects of this virus, including the transportation sector, airlines, and hospitality business. And I saw you did something about utility shutoffs and door-to-door sales practices. Any other actions the PSC has specifically taken? Right now, we've taken a number of actions in terms of interfacing with the customers. We've suspended a number of our procedures, including a oftentimes loathed procedure where we require utilities to file 17 hard copies of every filing We've suspended that, and we're now allowing everybody to file electronically. As you alluded to, last week the governor made an emergency declaration which would prevent any shutoffs of any utilities, including Internet, water, electric, and gas, until no later than 30 days after the state of emergency expires. And most of our utilities have voluntarily agreed to waive any late fees for customer payments during this period as well. So we're we're monitoring the, the industry on a daily basis. We don't see any major issues at this time. And as they do present themselves, we're going to address them as quickly as we can. That's terrific. Glenn mentioned in there the new normal, which has kind of become a catchphrase in this situation. Do you see that as what the fallout will be, or will we all kind of go back to where it was? I think some of these changes will stick permanently. And I think back to a quote that the mayor of Chicago, Rahm Emanuel, said, never let a good crisis go to waste. (laughs) I think some of these procedures that we're adopting, such as going paperless in terms of filing, may prove to have benefits beyond this situation that we're dealing with, and we may adopt them on a permanent going forward basis. So we're trying to build this plane as we fly it right now, and hopefully, if there is a silver lining here, we'll have some better procedures at the other end. i got to say, as somebody who, it's been a while, but who, who has filed at the PSC in Maryland, the 17-copy paper requirement was a little burdensome. So <laughs> if, that, if that goes away, I'm sure there's not going to be too many people that are upset by that. Very diplomatic. We'll have to figure out how to deal with without the the need for paper. We'll have to figure out how to deal without the need for paper copies, but with any organization, change is difficult, and there was a reason why 17 copies were being filed, and I think this is an opportunity for us to break away from that, as everybody is working from home and has no need for or no way to receive any paper. Well, if you're not worried about 17 copies of every filing, what are you focused on at the commission right now? Well, on a blue sky day, which we don't have right now, but we've been working on a number of projects 
everything from energy storage pilots to electric vehicle infrastructure adoption, the time of use rates, and having our utilities adopt more technologies and more customer service practices that benefit the ratepayers. So we've been very aggressive with our relatively small staff on establishing work groups and other procedures to allow our utilities to test the waters on new grid modernization efforts and other innovative portfolio approaches. We're obviously an energy-focused podcast, and you came from FERC. Among all of those sectors you oversee, you know, the tugboats in the Chesapeake and the Ubers, where does the electricity sector fit into that list of priorities? Well, the electricity sector by volume probably has the most work before us on our desk, whether it be our work with PJM or individual rate filings made by our large utilities. We have four large investor-owned utilities. We have five co-ops and we have four municipal electric utilities. So they each have different regulatory regimes that we apply and they keep us relatively busy. But I can say there's a lot happening right now in the electricity sector and it's front and center these days. Is there anything that you hope to accomplish in your time as chair for the rest of your commission there? Well, it's hard to believe, but more than a year and a half of my term has already passed. Sure. And one of my legacies is to create a culture of efficiency at the commission and enhance our service to the public. I try to do that by stressing the need to find more efficiencies by streamlining processes where needed and leveraging our very limited resources appropriately. I think I've had some success so far in the past year and a half, and over the next three and a half years, I hope to continue that. No 17 copies. It aligns right with that. <laughs> so. There we go. <laughs> I mean, if you just did that alone, I'm sure the Maryland Energy Bar would rejoice. So. I could tell you that that was probably one of the top priorities of the utilities, not a higher rate of return, but eliminating the paper copy requirement, yes. <laughs> it's funny how some of these very mundane things can be so impactful, and you almost don't realize how this was, you know, you're so used to this is just the way that we do it, you don't necessarily realize how much of a difference something as mundane as that can make. Yeah, you know, it's funny, I remember actually asking the question, I think it was maybe 15 years ago, why does Maryland requires 17 copies and the answer I got back was exactly that well that's what we've always done there was a history to it about you know need to go to a certain number of offices within the commission and they didn't want to do the copying so they did it that way there was a logic to it behind it at one point but at some point that logic got outlived that logic was still in effect as of last week and my plan was to ease this in over a course of 18 months oh really (laughs) instead we managed to ease it in over a course of 18 hours last week they're out Wow. Uh, yeah. our IT systems. Who says government can't respond quickly? How about it? Let's start down a little bit deeper on the electric vehicle infrastructure. How do you see that rolling out in Maryland, and what are the obstacles you might be hitting there? So far, we've seen a good deal of success. The governor has a goal of getting 300,000 EVs on the road by 2025. Currently, we have almost 30,000 electric vehicles registered in the state. Although I'm concerned with oil prices right now dropping again and gasoline prices making a similar drop, folks may not see the cost savings associated with going electric, and that may have a longer-term effect as a result of this event that we're currently experiencing. But I could say up until last month, I think we're on a very good trajectory. The larger utilities in the state have all been very interested in developing electric vehicle charging infrastructure. Our two largest utilities, Baltimore Gas and Electric and Pepco, have already deployed utility-owned public-facing charging equipment. And I believe that's necessary if we're going to have people feel comfortable adopting vehicles. They want to know where they could charge. 
And a utility is a name you could trust. It's somebody you feel comfortable with that when you pull up to the pump at 3 a.m. in the middle of the night, you'll know that the charger will be operational. I noticed that you didn't list offshore wind as one of the things that comes. Can you just give us an update on the offshore wind effort? I know that you issued the initial RFP. You got maybe another RFP coming. And if I remember correctly, there's some regulatory issues that have to come back before you as it relates to offshore wind. So last year, the General Assembly passed the Clean Energy Jobs Act which authorized another 1,200 megawatts in three tranches of offshore wind solicitations. So in January of this year, we began opening those solicitations up through an online portal on our website. Meanwhile, we're still working on the applications for the first two developers that filed a few years back. That would be Skipjack and U.S. Wind. And we've run into some issues there. These are pending cases. But we had earlier this year in January, public comment hearing out in Ocean City, Maryland, to get a better understanding of some of the concerns regarding the increase in height of some of these wind turbines. At the time when the commission actually approved the wind applications a few years ago, the wind turbines were much smaller. Now they're in excess of 850 feet, so they they rival the size of the Eiffel Tower, and we thought it was appropriate to solicit the comments. So we went to the Ocean City Convention Center. Approximately 1,800 people showed up. A good number of those folks each had three minutes to provide us with their public comment and feedback, and after listening to those concerns, we recently issued an order in each of those cases to establish an evidentiary hearing limited to the impacts of the term we use is the view shed, basically any obstruction that they would see on the horizon. And we will be scheduling the first of those hearings in June. And then tie that back, I'm mean, not to get too in the weeds, and tie that back to the statute and the approval. Is that one of the considerations you all could take in consideration related to the approval of these projects? How does that fit in in the big picture? Well, the, the approval required any of the developers. Well, the approval required any of the developers to return to the commission if there was a material change in the application. And here okay. we think that the size, the increase in size was a material change. So our approval in terms of awarding these developers the offshore wind credits, the OREX, that's not an issue that we're going to revisit. So we made it clear that this hearing is going to be strictly limited to impacts related to the view. Okay. Okay, so it's not the contracts are under question, it's just whether they'll get approval to go with these new larger ones versus the smaller ones that were previously approved. Is that a fair summary? That's correct. A lot of the manufacturers, such as General Electric, no longer make some of these smaller turbines that were state-of-the-art at the time the applications were filed. The commission, envisioning that there may be changes in technology built into that order several years ago, that changes may occur as a result of technological advancements, and hence, under that provision, we're going to be taking a look at the changes that actually occurred. Do you anticipate 1,800 people showing up at the evidentiary hearing? I would hope not because our (laughs) hearing room... uh, You don't have enough room for that, do you? (laughs) We have enough room for about 100 folks. With the current six-feet distancing requirement, maybe that will... (laughs) Seriously. Their position, I guess, is that, hey, we just don't want to see these. At some point, people need to become supportive of the fact that infrastructure exists, and if they want to continue to be able to do the things they do and live the lives that they have, there will be some trade-offs in how that goes. I always thought that was sort of universal, but there's obviously the banana and the NIMBY opinions. Are you seeing more of that? Well, speaking 
generally and not to any of these particular cases. What we'd say folks that have had a particular natural view for the beginning of dawn are reluctant to give that up or to make any changes. There are folks that recognize that changes need to be made and accommodations given to infrastructure, whether it be a road, a transmission line, or a wind turbine. And obviously, NIMBY issues are also ones that we see with relative frequency at the Commission. You know, and maybe I'll just expand a little bit in a general sense. When you start looking at some of the stories that are popping up, particularly like in local newspapers, the renewable energy community is starting to hit some pretty significant local headwinds on some of these projects. And I saw one from New York the other day. I saw one from, I forget where it was, I think maybe West Virginia the other day. And the local siting issues associated with some of these renewable projects is starting to become a bit of an issue. While folks want and support the move to renewable energy, the land impacts, the footprints that some of these projects require are pretty significant. So it's definitely kind of a new trend, I think, that we'll start seeing. As it relates to the offshore wind, obviously, that's a little bit of a different animal, but I think the same underlying sentiment is there. And it's just going to be interesting to see these issues play out, particularly on the East Coast, where there's very major population centers and not just a lot of space to put some of these things versus some of the big projects we're seeing in the desert southwest and what have you. And I certainly think, you know, as you look at 5, 10, 15 years, you can start to see some challenges, particularly as we try to reach some of these goals. Again, I'm not trying to downplay the importance of increasing renewable energy on the grid. I'm just starting to realize the politics may get a little bit less straightforward than it is now. And maybe we're seeing some of the early signs of that. And in Maryland, we're seeing that particularly not with the wind. Obviously, there are concerns with wind, but with solar development, particularly in our rural areas on the eastern shore and further out west in the panhandle. Governor Hogan last year recognized that this was a problem, particularly as we pursue increased RPS goals. And he convened what we call the REDS Task Force, REDS stands for the Renewable Energy Development Standards Task Force, where this Blue Ribbon panel was tasked with taking a look at these concerns, both from the perspective of landowners, municipalities, renewable energy developers, and try to figure out, okay, where is the best place for us to site these solar panels? Because nobody wants to cut down a virgin forest to replace them with panels. And we're finding a lot of opposition as well by folks in relatively rural areas that they don't want these in their backyards either. Meanwhile, you have some in the farming community who have quickly learned that they can make more harvesting electrons than they can whatever their native crop is. So we see neighbors against neighbors. We see concerns between the municipalities and their independent zoning boards. Hence, this task force, I think, will play a very important role. They've issued one interim report, and this year they have a final report due out, and we're looking forward to the results. And meanwhile, you have legislation that, I forget, is your solar standard 14%? Am I remember that in, in CJA? Yeah, the CJA standard 14.5% by 2030. Right, so you have a pretty aggressive mandate on the other side. Again, there's a friction there, and it's going to be certainly one of the stories that is going to be playing out over the next 10 years. This is something that we're going to have to tackle, particularly as our RPS overall has increased from 25% to 50% in the next 10 years. We're going to have to do more than just write checks to out-of-state for additional recs. Right, exactly. Do you anticipate, given the space concerns and the aggressive RPS goals, do you anticipate nuclear being part of that and needing to develop a system to support nuclear units in the state, as other states have done? We haven't had the same misfortunes of either Illinois
Illinois or New Jersey in terms of our one nuclear station, which is Calvert Cliffs. In terms of its economics, it's performing much better than some of the other states where you've seen the need to have state subsidies and support. So we're not there yet, although we recognize and the governor recognizes when he introduced his CARES plan that nuclear has a role. Zero emission does help us achieve our climate goals in, in the state. Obviously, there's concerns with waste and what you do with that, but in our state, currently the Calvert Cliffs facility provides a very large portion of our needs. You mentioned state subsidies in there, and if it wasn't for coronavirus, I suspect that all of the oxygen in the room would be taken up by the MOPR discussion, the minimum offer price rule, and FERC's order in mid-December of last year, and PJM just made its compliance filing in response to that order a couple of days ago. I wouldn't suspect that you've read through the entire compliance filing yet, but I know that Maryland has requested rehearing and clarification throughout portions of the proceedings on the MOPR. Where do you currently stand as far as your thoughts on the MOPR order, PJM's compliance filing, everything that is wrapped in that? Well, stepping back to December when FERC issued that order, we were taken aback at the determination because we were led to believe that the states would have more authority to determine its resource mix. Obviously, FERC stepped away from the alternative, more flexible FRR option that was hinted at when they issued their order in 2018. Nineteen months later, we see that the final determination with a very strict MOPR, which would effectively thwart a lot of these progressive and clean energy goals that states such as Maryland has. So we were concerned. We were scrambling. Our legislators in Annapolis recognize the gravity of the FERC determination. And we also recognize that we have generation in the state that are also put in a spot of uncertainty, and they've been in uncertainty since the capacity markets were deemed not just unreasonable back in the summer of 2018. One step that our General Assembly took to address this issue was to create a working group comprised of industry members, government agencies such as the PSC, as well as members of the Maryland Senate and the Maryland House of Delegates. So this has been a topic that's closely under review. Unfortunately, the legislative session was cut short this year. It ended earlier this week and it was the first time since the Civil War that the Maryland legislature had to adjourn early. And by early, it was about a month earlier than they would have originally planned. So there were lots of bills that were never passed and, and just died when the assembly went signy die on Wednesday. That said, we have utilities in the state that are still looking at the FRR alternative. We are still looking at that, and now we're looking at the compliance filing that was just filed two days ago and, and trying to decipher what's in that very large, very comprehensive document. Yeah, right. I think about pushing this close to 600 pages. I think it's like 560-some pages. It's a lot to work through. So let's maybe talk a minute about the FRR. What would be the reason to go FRR? What do you see right now as the pros and the cons of the FRR from a Maryland perspective? We're still looking at that right now. We've asked Dr. Joe Bowring to form a study similar to the study that he performed in Illinois to determine whether or not there would be benefits or detriments associated with Maryland exercising an FRR either by one utility exiting the capacity market in Maryland or all of the utilities exiting the capacity market. Obviously, with the rules in place now in the capacity market, there is some threat of over-procuring capacity. With an FRR, that threshold is somewhat lower. Obviously, uh, FRR could accommodate some of the state resources and the state prerogatives and some 
of the goals that we have that the capacity market may not be able to accommodate as envisioned by FERC in the 2019 order. So we're looking at all these options right now. We're not committed to exercising an FRR. The utilities would have to initially make that election, but it's something that we're paying attention to because the FERC order, as it stood back in December, had the impact to potentially raise prices on, on metal lenders, although we couldn't quantify with any degree of specificity how much that rate increase would be. You said the utilities would have to make that election, but I would assume they would have to do it with commission approval, right? Or is that still an open question? We're looking at that question right now, but I believe it's general consensus that the utilities would need permission from the Public Service Commission. Yeah, I mean, it would only make sense. I mean, they're talking about how to procure generation for their retail customers. So. And there's lots of other issues that are associated with that in terms of procuring capacity from affiliates, how this would impact not only retail supply, but our standard offer service. So once you start pulling that thread, there's a number of other issues associated with an FRR election that we're going to have to take a very hard look at. So it's not an easy decision. I know our legislators that have plugged into this situation, they are aware of it. The good folks at the PSC are looking at this as well. So it's not a decision we take lightly. There's only one utility in the country, to my knowledge, that has ever exercised an FRR, and that was back in 1999. So this is a different situation, and we're paying very close attention. Yeah, and I thought you did a terrific job, and you set a tone pretty early on in the Maryland legislative session this year on that issue, saying exactly what you just said. Hey, this is a very serious issue. It may ultimately be in the best long-term interest of Maryland to go this route, but it's not something you want to rush into without thinking through all the dynamics associated with it. That being said, it's not something that we want to drag our feet on and take months and years to figure out whether the capacity market is the right contract to stay in or whether whether either one or more of our utilities should consider the FRR. I would say in terms of the compliance filing that was made this week, I think it was a valiant and tremendous effort to see what PGM was able to come up with in just a very short 90-day period. It just shows that how hard that they've worked alongside with the state regulators, with OPSI, with the industry to come up with a compliance filing, which I'm still reviewing, but it appears to at least initially satisfy folks from the merchant generators to the renewable energy providers. We still may have some issues with respect to auction timing, but those may pale in comparison in terms of the other issues that have been addressed. I'd love to follow up on the comment you just made about PJM and state relations. Obviously, there's been some bumps over the last few years, and I would just be curious what you think of the current state of PJM state relations. I'm very optimistic on our level of relations with PJM now. Obviously, we've had three CEOs in the course of 12 months. We had a very smooth transition with Sue Riley becoming the acting CEO. We've seen new management at all levels. We've seen them make the smart decision to hire the former Ohio chairman, Austin Hawk, as their executive director for state regulatory affairs, and he serves as our liaison along with his team. So we're in constant communication, and I think that really does make all the difference. They heard our state concerns with respect to FERC decisions. And by taking a look at the recent compliance filing that was just made, those concerns were heard and they were addressed to the extent possible in the compliance filing, and we do appreciate that. So I'm very, very optimistic that the relationship between the OPSI states and PGM management is on good footing today and going forward. So we're at that part of the program again, as we do every month, where we offer two minutes of free advice for anyone in particular. It doesn't matter. It can be a person, an entity, uh, anyone that you think could use your two minutes of advice. We call this section Two Minutes with. Chairman, would you like to start us off? 
Well, since public service is our middle name, I would just like to say that right now, in a situation that is somewhat that was unforeseen, and hopefully this is a once-in-a-lifetime event with the COVID situation that we're all experiencing across the globe. We're seeing people resort to some of their basic human instincts, whether it be running out to the store to buy toilet paper or to take other measures. I think right now it's important for everybody to take reasonable precautions, but what I'm seeing right now is folks are either overreacting and isolating themselves and not making any contact with humanity. <laughs> and then you see folks on the other side who are going ahead, interacting with their friends, going to picnics, going to parties and going to the beach, which I think is the other extreme on the scale here. In such circumstances, you don't want to tell people, well, just stay calm and don't panic because this is a pretty serious situation and we don't know what's going to come back in terms of what happens next, next week, next month. But it is important for folks to follow the advice of the professionals here, seek comfort in that, and we'll be just fine. But to the extent that folks make a run on the Costco, it's not going to bode well for them or for their fellow neighbors. I think everybody needs to work together in this very extraordinary time that we're all experiencing around the world. Well said. Uh, great advice. <laughs> yeah, well, and thank you very much for joining us, Chairman. I mean, we know you got a lot on your plate these days, and we appreciate the work that you and all the other public servants are out there in the world doing right now because utilities play a very critical role in the health and well-being of our states and our communities and having effective uh, regulators of those utilities at the state level, particularly during times of crisis, is just an incredibly important and valuable public service. And you're not getting the thanks that the healthcare workers are getting these days, and they certainly deserve all the things that they are getting. Uh, utility regulators play a big role in this as well, and we applaud you for your willingness to step to the plate, serve the public in this way, and wish you all the best and support as we work through these trying times. Thanks, Glenn and Rory. These are issues that are going to be on the front burner for the time being, but as I said earlier, I think our industry is well positioned to address this and to make sure that we have the lights on and the gas flowing to make sure that the customers at home are safe and sound. The last thing that we have is, this is the GT Power Hour, but we never actually take your full hour. We give some of that time back to you, and it's looking today I'm going to say we're probably at about 35 minutes for this episode, which means you're getting a whole 25 minutes back to enjoy as you see fit and continue social distancing until we see you next time. Thanks again for joining us for another episode of the GT Power Hour. The views expressed on the show represent those of the hosts and not necessarily any GT Power Loop client. For more information, please visit www.gtpowergroup.com. That's G-T-P-O-W-E-R-G-R-O-U-P.com. Or send us an email at powerhour at gtpowergroup.com. That's P-O-W-E-R-H-O-U-R at gtpowergroup.com. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.